The subjects discussed in this podcast are sensitive and at times may be uncomfortable and controversial. The intent is not to teach or educate. The intent is to provoke independent thought through faith to better understand our differences and embrace them. Human conservation faces the challenges of today's society head-on by leaving our comfort zones and having the courage to discuss difficult subjects that keep us all divided. Pull up a chair and join me at the table as we search for ways to better connect with one another. The Human Conservation Podcast with host Reverend Corby Willette. Restoring faith in humanity by exploring the paths of culture, history, science, nature, and spirituality. Promoting human conservation through human conversation. Welcome to the Human Conservation Podcast. I'm your host, Reverend Corby. I hope everyone was well this week. Last week, we got started talking about a difficult subject, inequality. If you missed it and you get some time, you should really head back and give it a listen. This week, I was initially going to talk about some of the historical aspects of racism, but so much has happened over the past three weeks with mass shootings, and also we had something very important going on with the women's soccer team. They won a lawsuit giving them equal pay. And there's something fascinating behind the scenes with that that I really found relevant, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit this week. And maybe we'll start the history um, of racism because there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on that I think are very important in understanding equality in today's world. So, well, we're going to get started. So it seems we've come back to a place where mass shootings have become the norm. COVID gave us a break from these things. So back on April 14th, I believe, a man by the name of Frank James traveled to New York City and shot and killed 10 people on the New York City subway system. The arguments can go on and on. This is a guy that was ranting on YouTube leading up to it took issue with some of the things that the mayor said, considered himself a black nationalist, and for whatever his reasons are or whatever was malfunctioning upstairs, he decided that the proper course of action was to shoot a bunch of innocent people on a subway. And then this past weekend, we had a similar thing where you have an 18-year-old who is spending entirely too much time on the internet, decides that he's going to buy into conspiracy theories and actually goes as far as looking up to what the highest density of African Americans, what city has the highest density of African Americans that was within driving distance to him. And he drove up to Buffalo and shot a bunch of people up targeting African-Americans. I mean, it's obvious that this was a hate crime. Mr. James, it was a hate crime as well. There was a lot of rants about white people. And then you had a third shooting in California, which claimed someone's life and critically injured four more. Now, this was a Taiwanese church, and the motives are still unclear on that. But still, you have a guy that just malfunctions and 
I can't imagine that there's any good reason why he would shoot five people, killing one. All of these people were... One, the youngest person was 66. I mean, and the, the oldest one was in their 90s. So you have all this hate that's just out there, and it's it's coming apart at the seams. And what causes it? You know, I mean, it could be a lot of things, but, you know, as a minister, usually the first question I get is, how can God allow this to happen like you know you they use this as a a reason to say that god doesn't exist or to presume to know what god's plan is in all of this and so they ask the question how could god why why would god allow this to happen some people don't like the answer but the answer is free will The answer is that while these things are going on, God gives us free will. These people, for whatever reason, chose the path of violence, chose the path of hate. If you want to say the devil entered their mind, if you want to say that indoctrination, one way or the other, got a hold of them, that's fine. But Free will is one of the most important gifts that God gives us. If he took away free will, then faith is utterly pointless. You know, I believe personally that God has the power to come down and say, I want you to believe in me. Here I am. Here's all the proof that you need. But what does God get back out of that? I mean, when, you know, those people that have children... Like, when your children do something for you out of love, there is no feeling better in the world than when your son makes you that little piece of artwork that doesn't look anything like what he says it is. That's one of the greatest feelings in the world. So why wouldn't God want that from us? So free will is is really the most important thing. Now, you know... In a hard time, in a dark time, in a hate-filled time, it's hard to find God, but he's there. You know, I used to say this to a lot of people. I remember when the bombs went off at the end of the Boston Marathon, I was being mocked, and somebody kept coming up to me saying, well, where's your God now? Where's your God? And I said, do you want to know the answer? I said, the truth is that God is with all of those people that heard the explosion and ran toward it instead of away from it. On 9-11, God was with those firefighters and those policemen that are running up the stairs to save as many people as they can while everybody else is running down the stairs. So when you see these mass shootings, unfortunately because the outside is so just evil and dark, that nobody is looking for the co-workers that were pulling people out of harm's way, the mother that dove on top of her children, those types of things, that's where God is. God is with those people. Did some people die? Yes. But, you know, we had talked before uh, last season during Redemption and about how 
the justice for the victims is in heaven. Now, that's not very comforting to those of us that are left behind, but it's, I really believe that if we could wrap our brains around how beautiful heaven is, we would not weep for those lost. God has already brought comfort to the victims of these tragedies, and he'll also bring comfort to the family, friends, and loved ones of the victims as well. Here's what God can't do. God can't stop us from fighting with one another. It wasn't even a day after the Buffalo shooting that people were comparing it to Brooklyn, saying, see, white people do it too, black people do it too. And immediately it became politicized so fast. The gun control lobbies came out because both of these individuals had legal firearms. I don't know so much about the California church shooting, but both Mr. James uh, and the young man from Buffalo had legal firearms. So right away, you're going to have the arguments on the front of gun control, the fronts of mental illness, the fronts of racism, and everybody starts arguing. Nobody even took 30 seconds to just sit with their mouth open going, oh my God, that's horrible or to pray for those individuals that were hurt. Nope, right away we got to go right to the division. Nobody's going to highlight the acts of courage that took place during these tragedies. Let's just focus on the hate. Ironically, these three men were all equal in one thing. They all exercised the same amount of free will when they decided to take the lives of other human beings. So the question is, How do we change the attitudes of people? How do we stop the hate, the senseless violence, these mass shootings, these race wars, and all this other garbage that's polluting our society? How did we get to this point, and how do we change course? Well, I may be be biased because I am a Christian minister, but I really believe that faith is the key. See, when faith started to disappear from the mainstream, it just so happens that it it coincides with a lot of the violence, with a lot of the suicide, drug addiction. All of these things are up, and I feel like as a society, we're getting farther and farther away from, from God. Now, to me, it's not a coincidence that the rise in drug addiction, suicide rates, AIDS, sexually transmitted diseases, all these types of things started to increase when God began to decrease. And listen, some of it's our own fault because God began to decrease because of the Jimmy Swaggerts of the world and the Jim Bakers of the world and these con artists that came in the name of Christ that essentially destroyed the public's faith in God. People began to blame Jesus for the sins of these people. And as God's control, as God's, not as control, but as God's presence began to diminish, the presence of sin began to increase. The presence of the devil began to increase. And that's where you're getting all of this hatred, all of this animosity towards one another and most of your conservative Christians have retreated into a very structured 
belief system. So they start to get the fingers pointed at them for being homophobic or, you know, racist because they're following a letter of the law doctrine that doesn't seem very inclusive. So we have to find a way to bring faith back into the fold. Like you hear the term restore faith in humanity all the time, but the truth of the matter is we have honestly lost faith in almost everything. There's no faith in the legal system. There's no faith in the business world. There's no faith in our political system. There's certainly no faith really in God to speak of anymore. There's no faith in each other. So how do we get anything done with the inability to work? We're in a society where there are two very separate sides. You have the liberal side and you have the conservative side. So the liberals will only work with the liberals. The conservatives will only work with the conservatives. And they'll keep accusing each other of all kinds of things. And in this chaos, all kinds of judgment is born. And all kinds of troublemakers come out of the woodwork. You got the people like Tucker Carlson making millions of dollars from the conservative side. You'll have the Ibram Kendis of the world making millions of dollars writing books and speaking about the anti-racist movement and critical race theory and these types of things. How do we get God back in play with our society? We do that by first having a desire to want to get along with each other, a desire to want to make our society a better place to live in. That's what human conservation is about, creating a place that we all want to live in together. And I'm not talking about kumbaya and, you know, let's all hold hands and, and that type of stuff. I'm talking about becoming a productive society, respecting one another, loving one another as in, in general, because that's what God does for us. We have to begin to understand one another, take interest in one another. We throw this word equality around, and in reality, what we should be striving for is individuality. Nobody is equal exactly. We, we all have different skill sets. We're all good at different things. We have different cultures. We have different beliefs. This is something to be celebrated, not scorned, but we use it to divide each other instead of bringing us together, instead of trying to force everything to be the same. What we should be trying to do is, is understand the fact that regardless of who is down here on earth, that God sees equal value in every human being, whether they're black, white, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Ukrainian, gay, straight, whatever. God went to the cross and died for every person. See, we can walk around here and we can pretend that we're as smart as God. See, I really believe a lot of the Old Testament references uh, about the treatment of slaves and things like that, th those verses aren't in the Bible, so we can use them as leverage to excuse what we had done as a, as a white population. I believe that those verses were left here for those early African-American people so that they would know that they have the same inheritance in heaven as anybody else. 
that they have the same right to call on the name of the Lord as anybody else, and they have the same right to have their prayers answered as everybody else, and that they have the same value in the eyes of God as everybody else. If I was to say something to my white brothers and sisters, I would say this. Do not get caught up in the thought that there isn't white privilege in this country. If you were born in the United States of America with white skin, you are already ahead of the game. I was raised in a family where the aunts and uncles, the cousins, they were all family. I was raised not knowing really which one the blood relative was or, you know, who married into the family or who, you know, my mom's sister was or whatnot. And I had a cousin, Joe, who was a black man. And I was raised in an environment by a family where I didn't even question that until I was in my teenage years. Like, wait, why is, how is that guy my cousin? It, it, the thought just never crossed my mind. We just loved him, and he was our cousin Joe, and that was that. That's just how he brought up. And, you know, you think that by default that eliminates you from being a racist. Like, you think already you're, you're set, you're good. And it wasn't until much later. You know, I had friends that were black, and a couple of them were the type of guys that, you know, you could make a black joke and they would chuckle and laugh and be like, oh, you're stupid, you know, that type of thing. And you you think that these things are all harmless. And it wasn't until many years later I was working as a, a public safety officer at a college campus, and I had become very close friends with a black man at that university, somebody I'm good friends with to this day. And we were responding to a call one night, and it was myself and him and two other African-American officers. And when we got to the call, I don't even remember what the initial call was for. The guy was belligerent. He was a kid that had been in trouble with us before. And I remember the situation had degenerated to such a point that he was up in my friend's face, not just saying the N-word, but saying things like, I'm not racist, but I know what to call you people. Because guess what? I pay $30,000 a year to go to school here. If you touch me, if you want to hit me, you're losing your job. That's why I can call you, and again, the N-word, right in his face. And it was just stuff like that. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, that's horrible. I will never, ever know what that feels like. There's no way for me to ever comprehend what it must be because he was right. If my friend had struck him in anger, my friend loses his job. Even so, all he can do is endure that because he has kids at home and a wife at home that rely on him. And, you know, the end result was was the person being arrested. But I remember that's the first time in my life where I ever felt guilty being white. And not, not, not that it's not about me. I'm not trying to, oh, poor, poor white guy. He had to listen to that. <laughs> and I don't even mean to make light of it. 
But I remember when when the issue was over, how upset my friend was. And I remember we went over to the track. And there, and we worked the midnight shift, so you're talking like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. We just walked around the track. And I had no idea what to say. No idea. But if you want to know where God is in a situation like that, as we walked the track in total silence, total silence, one thought occurred to me is there is a curtain that was up between me and my friend where it sounds harsh, I know, but I'm just being candid and honest because some of you uh, folks will relate to this, is there is like a, a, a curtain that's still up where, you know, he wasn't my friend. He was like my black friend. And that in itself is awful, even though we had a good relationship where we talked. But that night, that curtain came down, and I finally understood a little bit, not what it, what it was like to be black, but I guess that's when he went from being my black friend to being my friend, because what upset me the most was that my friend was hurt. This individual hurt my friend, and I think that was a, a barrier that crossed, but it was because of an understanding. It was coming to the understanding that I'm not going to know what that feels like. I have an advantage. Now, we listen, we can argue the fine points of white privilege. I, I don't think it's the white privilege that critical race theory talks about. We'll get into that next week. But there, there is a definite advantage, and people have to understand that a lot has been taken. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of, you know... You read things and you see things. The reaction is still going to be different. You know, when you put on the news and you see that somebody actively sought out a community with a large population of African Americans for no other reason, and he just went and shot a bunch of people that he doesn't even know. Now... Even in the aftermath of George Floyd, when if you put on the news, the world was going crazy, and and people made it sound like, you know, if you walked outside, like a mob of black people were going to get you. Like every person of color that I met was still nice to me. All the customers that I, I dealt with at my job at the time were all, you know, willing to converse and, and not even bat an eyelash it wasn't like it wasn't that big of social media made it more than it was but the problem with George Floyd was is everybody is a collective black white even people in other countries that don't even deal with the level of racism that we deal here watched the George Floyd video and were appalled were absolutely appalled there was nobody that that thought that the policemen were in the right. Like, it was a unanimous decision that these guys were wrong and what happened was absolutely abominable. But somehow, we used it to divide each other. That we started pointing fingers when people started marching in the streets. 
But, you know, the same people had no problem when idiots are waving uh, rebel flags on the front uh, lawn of the Capitol building. I mean, there was somebody that walked through the foyer of the Capitol building with a rebel flag. That didn't happen during the Civil War. People have to understand, though, when we see things like this, that the African-American community is going to view it with a different calculus. And you know what? That's okay. They are looking at it from a historical perspective of where they came from. It's not possible, as harsh as this sounds, it's not possible for me to look at an issue like George Floyd the same way as an African-American man. For the same reasons I was telling you the story about my friend working at the university. I'll never know what certain things feel like. But based on that very thing makes the textbook definition of equality very, very difficult. So we have a tendency to try and make up for that white privilege by, you know, passing these laws. And then you get things like affirmative action and and these other types of of race laws that don't really work. And then they're handed over to the African-American community like it's a a victory or it's this or that, when in reality there's unintended consequences to some of these things that are are really bad. I'll, I'll give you one example here. So recently in California, they've proposed a new mathematical framework which eliminates a lot of the rigorous instruction, things like calculus and such. And they're citing the reason is because the more marginalized groups of people struggle with that type of advanced mathematics because they've had fewer resources and don't have the same opportunities as the non-marginalized students. So they want to, in a sense, dumb down mathematics so that way the more marginalized groups can make it up over the bar with the thought of well, they'll get a better grade because they're not doing that high-level work and that will make them better able to get into college. But in reality, what that what that's going to do is it's going to create a de facto privatization of the that advanced mathematics. So what's going to happen is, is it's actually going to make the gap even larger because the people that are more affluent, the the predominantly wealthy white communities would be able to afford that higher education by getting it privately, thus making them the more attractive candidate for the colleges and in a sense making the gap even farther. Like, wouldn't it be better to find out, okay, we know that these marginalized groups of people have fewer resources, So how do we address that? And the truth is, I don't have the answer to that. But to me, you know, bringing one down, we talked about this last week, the the object is to take these marginalized group of people and bring them up, not bring the top, not bring the ceiling down. You don't want to bring the ceiling down because what ends up happening is like that song, The Trees, we were talking about, everybody just ends up a stump. Everybody loses. Nobody wins. You want everybody to win. You know, when you push really hard for these equity things, 
you have to be careful that there's many unintended consequences to these things. And that takes me to another example of equality that's just mind-boggling to me, and that was the decision today that the courts ruled for the women's national soccer team, the U.S. women's national soccer team, awarding them equal pay for equal play. Now, on the outside, this looks like it was a good decision. And I want to be clear. I'm not opposed to equal pay for women and men. Absolutely. Absolutely. If a woman is doing the same job as a man, she should be paid the same. But what the ruling was, was that the women's national team and the men's national team will now pool all their resources and split them down the middle. Now, this also includes you know, uh, endorsements and that type of stuff, money made outside of the U.S. national team, as well as World Cup pools. Now, here's where the scale is not equal, is that the United States women, when they won the World Cup, received a $4 million top prize. Now, the same year that France won the World Cup, France's first prize pool was $38 million. So there's obviously a big weight here. Now, you have to understand, though, that this ruling and this lawsuit is the United States national. It doesn't have anything to do with other teams in other parts of the world. So now the women and the men are sharing all this prize money. So the women have won two World Cups recently. How many have the men won? Well, geez. They didn't qualify for the last one, so they would have gotten zero. And the World Cup before that, the men made it to the round of 16. Now, making it to the round of 16, they still got $5 million, but that was actually a good showing for the American men. So ultimately, what I fear is going to happen is the women are actually going to end up carrying the men out of this ruling because how many women's soccer players can you name? I know Abby Wambach, Megan Rapino, Christian Press. Uh, I can name, I just named three, Hope Solo. I, I just named four in a matter of 30 seconds. I can't tell you a single man on the men's soccer team. When's the last time you've seen an endorsement with a man's soccer player? I'm sure there's some, but not they're not household names. Megan Rapino was doing Subway commercials. They're going to share that revenue 50-50 with the men. I don't know that this is a great breakthrough the way it's structured. To me, it sounds like a massive dupe because the women's soccer is huge in America. Men's soccer has never been that good It's not going to suddenly become good. So I have a feeling that the women are going to end up carrying the men rather than the other way around. Yes, if the men's soccer team was going to win the World Cup and bring home $38 million, the women certainly make out on the deal. If you know American soccer, and I admit I'm not an expert at it, but the women are definitely better than the men there. So we'll see what happens, but... Sometimes when you push really hard for this word equality, you end up worse off than you with, with unintended consequences. So, so next week we're going to wrap up 
equality. There's definitely a couple of things that I want to touch on uh, historically that I believe can really benefit us as far as bringing faith and God back into the equation. So stay tuned for that. As always, thanks for stopping by to give me a listen. If you like what you heard and you want to support the show, make sure you give it a like and hit the subscribe button. This will get the word out and help others to find the podcast. If you'd like more information about me or how to book my services, you can find it at corby.com, spelled C-O-R-B-I-E-Y.com. And if you want to join the conversation, comments and questions can be sent to hcpodcast at corby.com. And that'll do it. I hope everyone has a blessed and fruitful week. And remember to be kind to one another, listen to one another, and try to understand one another. Because human conservation can only come about through human conversation.